0: Well, in the, in the first four chapters, we've, we've focused, haven't we, haven't we, on how the culture of the town was influencing the culture of the church, but now things flip, and we see how the culture of the church might start to impact the culture of the town, and if you do turn to chapters five and six, you'll see those headings, the little editorial headings in Scripture, and you might well wonder what on earth have these two subjects got to do with one another, sexual sin, and lawsuits between believers. Well, the unifying theme between the two of them is that these are both things that were taking place within the Corinthian church that were being witnessed by those outside the church. And what the town saw the church doing, they concluded, must be the kind of thing that God was all about. Now, uh, you know that sometimes when we approach subjects like this, I give a PG-13 warning sometimes. I'm not gonna give one today. Uh, Our kids seem to know way more about this subject than I did at their age. I think perhaps they they know even more than I do now. And uh, that said, you need to be aware it is a delicate and a sensitive grown-up thing to discuss. And uh, for that matter, so is the subject of sex. Okay, now we're gonna have a sermon. We begin, chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Not particularly shocking because within the Corinthian church there were humans and humans do immoral things. But in any event, this word, one word in Greek, two in English, it is so incredibly broad that it surely covers every single one of us in this room. It covers anything at all that falls outside of the boundaries of a lifelong marriage between one man and one woman. That's what the word means. Even down to things you might have searched for on the web or imagined in your head or just accidentally seen at Ross Park Mall and then gone back accidentally to see again. I think uh, those posters leave nothing to the imagination. Every single one of us knows Victoria's Secret, I believe. This is a kind of sin that we all commit. Some of you walk through like that, I see. You know, this is a sin that we all commit, I, I, I think. But in this very specific case, Paul is talking about something going on inside of their church that is extremely unusual. He says in verse 1, it is of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. In other words, the thing going on in their church is such An extreme example of sexual immorality that even the culture of the town had not come up with this one. Want to know what he did? Still in verse one, a man has his father's wife. It is incest of some kind. And the word has indicates this thing has been going on. This is the man's pattern of life. It's what he does. It's a settled relationship of some kind. Like our world, The Roman world and the Jewish world both regarded this kind of thing as completely unacceptable. And yet somehow, here we have the Corinthian church boasting about it. Verse 2. You are arrogant, says Paul. It's the same word that we looked at last week for puffed up and uh, swollen with pride. And uh, next week, we're going to examine the sin a little bit more carefully. And we're going to see some examples, perhaps... Uh, of this same bracket of sins that are a bit more common in our world. This, I do believe, is a deliberately extreme example, to make the point. But as we zoom in today, I just want you to note quite carefully, Paul does not spend very long rebuking the man here, anywhere near as much time as he spends rebuking the church. turns out the church has failed the man. The church has failed to hold this man to account. And of course, in failing the man, they failed themselves. they failed to grow up and be a mature church. And in failing themselves, they've failed the town. The town is watching everything the church does and making conclusions about Jesus from the behavior of the church. Let's take these points in turn, the man, the church, and the town. Verse four, the man. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, when you think about helping people, uh, I'm going to guess that Satan and the destruction of the flesh don't really spring to mind. Uh, If you went to the ER, you would not expect it to be run by Satan or to have your flesh destroyed, would you? Unless, of course you're insured by UPMC, then, uh, then you might. So I actually thought it would be the sex stuff that got me in trouble this morning, Robert. I didn't think it'd be a joke about health insurance. Should I change it to NHS for the second service? Maybe that would feel a bit safer. I don't think any of you work for them. Uh, abandoning the man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh is so that it's, uh, it means in order that. It's called a Hena clause uh, in Greek. It means for the purposes of his spirit being saved in the day of the Lord. The whole reason why this thing is about to take place is for his own good. Now his sin, extreme, unusual though it is is no more of a barrier to salvation than any other sin at all that any of us might have done. And uh, the problem is not really his sin so much. The problem is his ongoing, very public willingness to do this sin and the willingness of the church to encourage him for doing it. So as a very last thought, the church is called by the Apostle Paul to have an extremely uncomfortable meeting a conversation with this man about what he's up to. Note carefully, he's not going to be mobbed in the parking lot by a small group of very angry folks. Uh, He's not going to be the subject of gossip. He's not going to be the, the the guy that everybody laughs at in the church. This thing is a very carefully organized event they are about to do. It is a regular assembly of the church. They're gathered in Jesus' name, just like we are now. It's a church service. That's the context. That means, therefore, that the thing they're about to do takes place within the context of the Lord's Supper, of Holy Communion, the very meal where we are reminded of the grace of God, regardless of what it is that we have done. This meeting takes place within the context of biblical teaching, where the plain Word of God is brought to bear. Every single sermon we have ever preached in this church and posted online, we've tagged with the word grace. Because they're all about grace. If they're not about grace, they're not sermons. And this meeting, as well as being in the context of Holy Communion and a grace-filled sermon, is going to be in the power of Christ. It is going to be within the power alone in this universe that can heal and forgive and restore and reconcile anything at all whatsoever, regardless of what it might be. And when they do this thing, hopefully, when the man sees the seriousness of the church about this sin, and yet the seriousness of the church about grace, hopefully he repents, and is restored, and he comes straight to the table straight away. That's the aim. A conversation like this, where you confront someone in public about their sin. It's only actually going to be possible in one of two types of church, I believe. An unusually cold and judgmental kind of a church with lots of legalism, where people are regularly shamed and spiritually abused like a cult. Or an unusually warm and gracious kind of a church where the most delicate conversations become the norm around a table like a family. Only in one of those two types of church can you talk about this kind of thing. Most churches often fall somewhere in between. And so they can't talk like this. Uh, In the Old Book of Common Prayer, not the new version, but the 1662 version, uh, they had conversations like this all the time. It was built into the rubrics and the text of the liturgy. And uh, every single week before the the curate, as he was called, uh, the, the pastor, presided at Holy Communion, he would be required to read out the names of those excommunicate out loud just to make sure that person wasn't in attendance and didn't come forward. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it, by our culture, but they did this very serious thing for the good of the man. Outside the church, put out of the body, he will still have a God to worship but it will not be the God who died for him. It'll be the one that wants to kill him. he will still have a pastor, but it will not be a servant pastor who puts him first. It'll be one of the many hucksters in the town trying to make money out of him. he will still have a congregation, but it will not be the intimate congregation of grace that seeks his restoration and the salvation of his soul. It'll be the lost. It'll be a group that acts upon every impulse of their heart, whatever it might be. And sometimes those impulses will act against his consent as well. In that place of isolation, he will descend into something even worse. Until verse 5, it might destroy his very flesh. Then at rock bottom, at last, when there is nowhere else to go, at last, desperate, the hope is he might repent this is a horrible thing to have to do. This is absolutely atrocious. Uh, Could could you imagine how gut-wrenching it would be if we had to do that now this morning? And and relax, we're not going to do it, uh, to my knowledge. (laughs) But uh, could you imagine what it would be like to do that here? I can absolutely understand why no one and no church wants to have a meeting like this. In the Anglican Church as well as publishing a list weekly of those who excommunicate. We have several specific events designed to kind of build a route back for people like this. The Ash Wednesday service that we'll celebrate in a, a few days' time was specifically designed to restore those who were excommunicate. The notorious sinner was called back. We go out of our way to restore the person we've expelled and we never, ever give up. We do it all the time. Uh, No no matter how awful it would be, though, it is better for the man to be treated this way than to be lost for eternity thinking somehow he was okay. The man. Uh, Second point, in avoiding the uncomfortable meeting, they've really failed themselves. The church has failed to help Anyone, actually, in avoiding this uncomfortable meeting. Because in my experience, what will happen when we start to get serious about sin and we, we talk to one another like this, is the whole culture of the church will start to change for the better, for my own part. If, if I knew that I was going to have to get up today and excommunicate a member of the church, then I would begin my day with a very serious confession of my own sins, There's no way I would hold a meeting like that unless I'd first gone to uh, the other pastors or the eldership of the church and just taken my spiritual grocery bag of filth and dumped it all out in front of them all to see. Because otherwise, I'd be a hypocrite. This word covers me. I'm a sinner too. The more confessional we become, the less judgmental we become. When someone makes themselves vulnerable like that and shows what they have going on, people tend to soften, not toughen up. And uh, we start to see people, I think, as being a bit like ourselves. When someone confesses, we want to confess. The more we trust one another, the more we confess, the closer we feel. And of course, in bringing the word to bear on these issues, the the closer to God we feel until it all becomes normal for people to talk like this, you know, like a church. Have you ever had that thing where someone cuts you up in traffic? And Blood boils. And you give them one of these. And then you see that it was someone from your church. And then you try to sort of turn it... <laughs> You know, try and turn it around, something like that. Um, Why is it we do this? It's because we love the person and we know them. It's not because the thing they did with their car was suddenly okay. It wasn't. It really was a violation of many rules of the road and it got your goat. But because you know them and you love them, you show them some grace. Well, really, the whole of church should be like that. This should turn to this because of the intimacy that we have in this room. I'm sure that this distance we feel uh, from other humans in this world, uh, the more sort of socially networked we become, is is one of the reasons why our discourse has become so vile online. The further we feel from people, the more we feel capable of judging them and, and venting spleen upon them. Of course, the closer we feel, the easier it becomes to show grace. I've seen that here. I went to my first small group on Tuesday, saw it, that the closer we are, the more vulnerable people are, the more grace we give, the closer we feel. It kind of just spirals. I've seen it in testimonies from the front. You remember that wonderful testimony that someone gave from the front about this very subject and how vulnerable she was as she shared those Words. The more vulnerable we become, the more connected we become, the more connected we become, the more gracious we become until confession and intimacy and grace and vulnerability and openness just become the norm. Uh, Interestingly, psychologists believe that uh, one of the chief, chief motives for sexual immorality is that we crave intimacy. And yet, ironically... One of the main side effects of sexual immorality is that we feel more and more alone. Town is spiraling. And uh, I think the rebuke to the church in Corinth is that the church really looks a lot more like the town than it should. In fact, actually, I think the church is worse than the town, if you could believe such a thing. He says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. You know, even the town would be ashamed of this one. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Strange phrase, but leaven was the rising agent in bread, and like it, immorality spreads. Which leads to the third point. The church has failed the town. They've failed the man, they've failed themselves, and they've failed the town. At merely emulating the culture of the world around us will not help the world around us. Lifeway, the Christian publisher, found that in the last 30 years, churches that uphold a biblical sexual ethic have in fact grown inside the United States. That's a, a shocking thought, isn't it? But at the same time, the churches that have decided to uphold a secular sexual ethic have in fact suffered, quote, a precipitous decline. The massive growth of non-believers that we see inside the United States has come mostly at the expense of of the old mainline church that has gone out of its way to adopt the principal strategy year after year after year of just copying whatever it is that they see going on in their town in the hope that somehow the town will notice that the church now approves of what they do, and then they'll join. Why would they? Why would anyone join? If life inside the church is exactly like life outside the church, why would anyone join? For the pews? <laughs> this year, the Church of England reached a record low as it became a minority church for the first time since 1536. And this week, the bishops of the Church of England unveiled their plan to turn things around. In a vote 36 to 4, they would develop their doctrine of sexual immorality. Uh, developed, by the way, is a euphemism from the Archbishop of York, in the way that one might develop one's foot by, say, for example, shooting oneself in it. (laughs) They've abandoned scripture. My bishop has abandoned scripture. He's given up on the revealed word of God. And having read scores of articles and internet posts on this subject in the last few weeks, ironically, the people most hurt by this change are the ones that I genuinely believe the bishops were trying to love. The secular world is hurt that the move does not go far enough. And the members of the church are hurt because they've been trying to live God's way and now they feel tempted by the overseers of the flock. The church has failed the man, it's failed itself, and now it's failed the town because it's exactly the same as the town. That's the issue. Now, as we get to chapter 6, lawsuits against believers, you still might be saying, well, what is the link? How do we get from sexual immorality to litigation? Uh, Let me tell you, I work for an international law firm. The link is closer than you might think. But I suspect Paul's point is that if we learn to have uncomfortable conversations inside the church about the most culturally sensitive and difficult and delicate and grown-up subjects that there are, then we're going to create a roadmap to resolve absolutely anything at all. In chapter 6, because everyone did their own thing, when members of the Corinthian church were in dispute over something trivial, like money or land or a deal or something like that, uh, if they were innocent and being victimized by the litigation, they just assumed that the church wouldn't care, that it wouldn't be able to help because it never talks about anything difficult. If they were guilty and they were using litigation to bully someone else, they assumed that they'd get away with it because the church would never hold them to account. If the church dismisses big problems, surely it will dismiss the little ones too. So what they did is they gave up on church. They went outside to the secular courts. And this was such a horrible witness for the town to see infighting played out in the town square that even a win at trial, verse 7 says, is still a defeat for the church. Again, note carefully how the criticism here is not so much against the litigants in person and much more against the church as a whole. The world is watching us. They've almost stopped watching us. In the 70s and the 80s, all the jokes on TV were about the church and how silly clergy looked. They don't laugh at us anymore because they're not thinking about us anymore. We've almost become irrelevant. And if they're asking any questions about the church at all, it is, do we have anything special to offer, anything unique, or are we exactly like everyone else? Like Corinth, our town, Our world is desperately enslaved, and it needs the church, needs grown-up talks. Uh, It is estimated that 30 million Americans actually live with a sex addiction, and symptoms include depression, body image dysphoria, anger, dissociation, neglect of family, work, even self, and crushing isolation. 30 million people in our country live like this. I suspect that's a conservative estimate. Do you think that technology is helping this trend in any way? New subject. It's also estimated there are about 40 million lawsuits in the United States every year. and The Journal of American Psychiatry and Law says that stress from litigation frequently causes sleeplessness, anger, humiliation, loss of self-confidence, anxiety, despondency and PTSD. There is a clear link between both of these things and lives that fall apart. Both of these things lead to more division, more isolation, more loneliness, more shame, more loss of hope, which leads us back to seeking comfort in the very things that were making us feel this way in the first place, a spiral. By the way, church, what a sermon before we get proud that somehow we're the goodies in this scenario, statistically, the incidence of these things amongst churchgoers and non-churchgoers are more or less the same. Perhaps that's because in many places, the church and the town are more or less the same. Paul calls us back to Jesus. Our sin might be the same as anyone else's. But our hope is unique. We still have Jesus. It calls us back to Jesus, calls us back to the God of grace. Calls us back to that God that says, regardless of what you've done, there's no condemnation for those who are in me, who are identified with him and washed by him and saved by him. Our hope is unique. And if the church would just be the church, stop judging outsiders and boast about Jesus, Think how many people might be set free. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm well aware that this sermon is the kind of homiletical equivalent of a workhorse episode of a TV show. That is tough to hear, but advances the story. So please, Lord, uh, would you bless us uh, as we talk about difficult things, would you give us grace to laugh at ourselves? Would you protect us from ever judging someone outside the church? Would you enable us to be vulnerable and honest and open and uh, to confess? And to confess because we know that there's good news on the other side of that confession, that there is restoration and there is freedom. Lord, if any of us is lonely or, or feeling ashamed by any subject like this one today, Lord, we hear again and again and again your word of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.